Hello, and welcome back to the Plantas Pod, bold strategies for visionary entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Daniela Alam, and on today's episode, we speak with Mika Kasumov, fractional chief performance officer and the founder of Abacus and Pencil. He shares his insights on finding the right investor for your business and how to leverage your finance team as a growth driver instead of purely a cost center. We also discuss his own journey of entrepreneurship and his learnings on the leadership mindsets that help drive growth at scale. I hope you enjoy the episode. And as always, please make sure to follow us and leave us a review if you're liking the podcast. Hey, everyone. I am super excited for my guest today. Uh, His name is Mika Kasimov, and we go way back. Uh, maybe too far back, we will date ourselves because we've probably known each other for about 20 years now-ish. But let me introduce him to you and then I'll let him take the stage. So Mika Kasimov is the founder of Abacus and Pencil and it's a consulting agency focused on helping early to mid-stage startups manage through transformational change. It came out of his own dual track experience, leading both go-to-market and finance and strategy teams at the VP level at companies like Pantheon.io, Upwork, and Masterclass, which I'm sure you've heard of. He effectively plays the role of a fractional VP in finance strategy and operations and acts as a thought partner to the CEO and CFO. He's focused on bridging go-to-market product and finance decisions into a single investor outcome-focused narrative. Mika, it's so exciting to have you on the show today. Welcome. Danielle, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So maybe, Mika, you could tell us a little bit more about your story and background. How did you get to founding Abacus and Pencil and to where you are now? Yeah, sure. Um, in my entire career, I've, I've really been driven by creating learning opportunities for myself, right? And um, that has led me to some some interesting places. It, it meant that I didn't necessarily have a linear career path. I wasn't kind of going into one company and trying to get promoted from analyst to manager to director or whatever over time. Um, mm-hmm. I really focused on working with people that I could learn from and putting myself in situations that challenged me. Uh, that meant one of those one of those areas that like that I ended up digging into is moving from a finance role into a sales role, and that's I think that's relatively uncommon. Um, I'm super grateful to the CRO who took a bet on me and took a risk just frankly from his career and his like quota perspective and letting a finance person take over part of the sales team. Um, but for me, what that meant is um, the opportunity to go and actually understand like what actually happens when the rubber hits the road. Because I was at a place in my career where I felt I could build the most beautiful model, I could build the most beautiful slide, I'd raise money from investors, I could get the board, the executive team aligned. But when it came down to execution, the answer inevitably came back somehow different. Like we would get to the same results that I forecast and expect and whatnot, but we'd get there in a way that was a little bit more windy than I would have imagined. And I wanted to understand what is it that starts to break down when you start, when you push out a decision to 20 salespeople to a marketing team that needs to partner with a product team to bring something to market. Mm-hmm. What actually led me to 
like making that transition. And I, now I think of it as an externship almost like for 18 months at the time I, I really just said, Hey, let's figure out what I can learn in the next couple of quarters. And then we'll decide if this is something I want to do long-term or not. Um, and look, it was, it was eye-opening for me, just seeing how the investor narrative at board level conversation needs to marry with priorities and execution at the individual level. Like, I was like, holy shit, <laughs> I was so dumb three months ago. Like, I think there's so many obvious mistakes, right? Um, and now, what I'm doing now is ultimately coming out of that experience. Like, I want to help other leaders, typically at the finance operation as a founder, um, help help bridge that disconnect between what we talk to investors, uh, what's the investment thesis we talk about, and what does it actually take to execute? And what is something that makes every individual sales, marketing leader, and IC wake up and do the best work of their careers? Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating. So what made you go from that kind of roles at companies to then decide to be an entrepreneur and have your own consulting firm? working with a variety of different companies. Yeah. Um, for me, and this is a personal answer, it's not necessarily the right answer for everybody. For me, it came down to control my own time. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, I felt that if I wanted to keep progressing down kind of like the corporate tech startup career ladder, there are parts of the job that I really enjoyed and there are parts of the job that I could do well, but they weren't intellectually challenging. They weren't necessarily as motivating for me, right? Uh, I mean, compliance becomes a bigger, bigger part of your job as you progress up the finance trajectory, and that just wasn't something that was exciting. Sexy for you? It wasn't sexy enough? <laughs> no, right. um, now, super, super important, right? But just not something that I would want to be in mind. Frankly, there are probably people who are more motivated by it will do a better job that I will, right, in doing those things. Um, and I wanted to have the opportunity to focus on really the things that I do best and the things that I'm passionate about. Uh, and in doing so, scale the impact. So instead of working with one company, one founder at a time, I get to work with three or four. Uh, and that, again, going back to learning, which is what's driven my career so far, like it accelerated my learning and seeing the diversity and breadth, being able to compare and contrast different companies in real time. Um, and it has also given me the opportunity to go and push forward the kinds of operating principles that I believe in, that I think make companies better, that unlock the latent potential of finance and strategy um, in a way that I couldn't do necessarily if I were working for one company full-time. Mm. Yeah, I really resonate with that. That was definitely one of the reasons why I also decided to become a consultant is how about I focus on the things that I do best um, so I can add the most value to a company instead of being focused across a variety of things that I may not, may or may not be able to do. Um, but where my passion lies is where I find that I can be the most effective uh, as a leader and really add the most, most value. Um, so I really resonate with that. But as you also probably know, how long have you uh, had near consulting firm? When you started, it's my third quarter, so not going to going to my fourth quarter in the month. Oh, okay. We almost have the year mark. So, what are some of those? I've been at it now for two and a half years, so I'd be very curious to hear what are some of the highlights uh, of that life 
And what are some of the lowlights? What's what are some of the challenges that that maybe you didn't expect uh, going into into this type of work? Um, that's a good question. The, there's a couple. Um, maybe focusing initially on the on the ones that are specific to going run consulting business. Um, you need to really enjoy selling, right? Um, it's a big part of the role, um, and it's not really. Like, like an immediate reward. Like you have a lot of conversations, a lot of networking calls. You give out a ton of free advice. Um, and some of that is going to come back in a year. Some of it is never going to come back. Uh, some of it is going to come back immediately. You need to enjoy the process from actual networking and sales conversations. Because if you don't, A, you're going to be bad at it. B, you're going to be miserable because it's a big part of your time. Mm-hmm. So for me, that meant figuring out a way to have calls that are de facto sales calls, but don't feel like sales calls, right? Mm-hmm. When I get on the phone with somebody new and I haven't met before, I approach it as an opportunity to get to know their business, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the call, we figure out that it makes sense to have a second call, great. If it doesn't and we want to touch base in six months, that's fine too. Well, literally, I've only gotten everything I need from that call because I learned about the new business. And that alone is worth half an hour of my time. Right. Well, I like that perspective, too, because I think a lot of people, when they think they have to, like, sell, they think they have to put on this, like, big show, right? And it's like, I'm going to be ready with the slides and I'm going to be ready to, like, seal that deal. And oftentimes... Um, what I found is that that that's usually not the most successful way to approach it. Um, and it's, and it's often like way too overwhelming. Uh, so thinking about these sales calls in a way of just learning about the potential client's business, um, I think is a, is a really helpful way and something that I, I think I learned a little bit later in the process. Um, that, that, that was just like a, a lower stress way also, especially if you're not fully comfortable doing things like you said, like just selling, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I led a sales team, right? A SaaS sales team. And then I, when I learned how to kind of like sell my own consulting services, I kind of like went back and thought of like, okay, how do we sell software? Right. It's obviously by different software services, but like what are the core best practices from a sales perspective? And if I think about it, like, do we have a sales deck? Yeah, we did. Did our best sellers use that sales deck? Rarely. Get an organization, you make a human connection. If there's something specific you want to talk to, you pull up, you know, slide 24 out of their sales deck and you speak to that slide. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't come up, that's also fine too. Because nobody wants to be told that you have all the answers without ever learning anything about their company. Um, it doesn't really matter if you're selling yourself, your services, software, a physical good. You want to start with, I mean, what is effectively called discovery, right? And you're always continuing to qualify, like your prospect and find common growth, find common success areas. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like that experience in sales was was really valuable for you, even now as as a consultant selling your own your own services. Um, what are is there any other amazing tips you have from that experience in sales? Uh, that you would have for for other folks trying to sell services. Um, I think the important thing to learn is just like a conflict of ambiguity, 
right? And the tech is coming out of both the sales, but also kind of like the finance and strategy experiences. Like, there's only so much we have under our control at any given point in time. And you need to, you know, as a founder, um, again, this is true of whether founding a VC back startup, a large P leading a P firm, whatever. Um, you need to be able to maintain two opposing beliefs in your head. One is that you're going to succeed <laughs> no matter what. And two, all the data screaming in your face saying these are all the ways that you can fail. Mm. And you need to be comfortable acknowledging and mitigating that risk while also knowing that you're going to get to the other side of it. Right. So like good, good sales leaders that I've seen think about the three, four different levers they have to achieve their goal. They invest in all of them, knowing that maybe two out of three are going to work out in any given year. Oh, no. Finance leaders think about two or three different ways they can't, they have to keep burn under control, knowing that, you know, one of those things is going to work out. They're going to, they may have to pay a big legal fine that they weren't planning on paying. They may have to overpay for a critical hire that wasn't the budget, but they have a little bit of a buffer that they know where they can take it from. If push comes to shove, right? And knowing that you have multiple paths to success is critical and maintaining those paths in your mind without necessarily feeling fully committed to one is ultimately what makes, you know, helps companies succeed in the current economic environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I think that's really insightful, right? Like being able to hold conflicting things in your mind. It's, it's an area that I notice a lot of startup founders especially in the early stages, sometimes struggle with um, yep. because they're so focused on one versus the other. And oftentimes it's the role of people like us to, to try to get them to think of a more holistic way uh, and a holistic picture. What made you be able to think like that? Like, where did you learn that skill? Because it doesn't feel oh. like it's something that's innate to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, a lot of stumbles and mistakes along the way. <laughs> I, I think... Even as far back as two years ago, I struggled to get on the same page with founders because I felt that if I bring them data that tells them that we should go right instead of left, they're going to be great. Let's go right. But the reality is that as a founder, like if you especially think about it, the early days, like your entire success is predicated on the ability to go convince other people that the market is wrong and you're the only one who knows the right path forward. Right. <laughs> investors giving you fundraise funding the employees joining the early stage startup they know that statistically 95 percent of the startups are going to fail mm -hmm. but you're doing it because of that five percent chance so bringing data saying well 95 percent of the time blah 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 happens isn't really helpful because we're betting on the five percent chances not the 95 percent right? mm -hmm. that's the whole nature of the startup um mm -hmm. so Ultimately, it comes down to like, what is the story you tell yourself? What is the story you tell investors? What is the story you tell your employees? And what is the story you tell your customers? And mm -hmm. successful companies, now this isn't, you know, this is not enough to achieve success, but it is necessary. If, you, if you're not doing this, you're not going to be successful. Like successful companies make sure the investor, the employee, the customer story, and of course the story that honor sells themselves when they go to sleep at night, they're all aligned. Mm -hmm. If there is any kind of daylight between these stories, someone's going to find that gap. The competitor's going to walk in there, and the investor's going to point it out, and things are going to start falling apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. 
that's so true. Um, and I've definitely seen that more and more in one part of the industry that I'm in, which is the, the plant-based CPG space, right? Where we've seen a lot of stories about this is like sort of the revolution, but then at the same time, you have a lot of companies every single day that are going bust um, in the space now at this, right? Two years later after, after the big boom. Um, and a lot of it is probably likely to, due to what you were saying, right? Like that lack of alignment and, and the fact that maybe, you know, maybe the consumer insight wasn't there. Maybe the execution wasn't there. Like some something broke down in this in this story that was told to whoever the investors were that gave them millions of dollars. So I think that that's really true. So talking a little bit about uh, founders in early stages of their business, what would you say is like, you know, if you have one thing to tell them, uh, especially those that are maybe uh, in the pre-seed or seed rounds, what are what is one thing you would tell them that that they should think about or focus on at that stage? Yeah, um, it's hard to pick one, um, and you can have more. Every, but I want your number one first. Yeah, every founder is coming from a different background, right? So uh, they have different strengths and weaknesses. Um, we can talk about talent. We can talk about fundraising. I think the thing that kind of cuts across is obviously the current macro environment. Um, and I'll say this, ignore it, <laughs> yeah. uh, ignore what we'll tell you about the current macro environment. Like you're going to get the valuation you're going to get, but you're not building a company based on a one year time horizon. You're going to have to go before, between now and, you know, where the exit or keep running in, uh, for the next 20 years, you're going to go through multiple of these market cycles. You're going to raise some money at the top of the cycle, some money at the bottom of the cycle. It'll all even out. Well, what all makes you successful isn't whether you had five or ten or fifteen percent dilution in year one. What makes you successful is whether you're able to execute and show you actually delivered the commitments you made in the previous funding round. Ooh. So, um, too many too many founders I know stress about optimizing dollars and cents because they're in it because they want to have an exit, and that's fine. Money is an important motivator. We we all wouldn't be doing what we're doing if. We didn't want to get paid, uh, but it's important to not be myopic around it. It's important to think about, you know, what I was saying earlier, ambiguity. What are the different pathways to success here? And then when you start thinking about the multiple pathways to success, as opposed to just like the linear happy path, you need to recognize that what your seed round, the valuation of your seed round doesn't matter as much as the quality of the investor you get on board, because that investor is going to be making productions for your series A. That investor is going to be introducing you to fractional CFOs, CROs, whoever, advisors. People are going to shape the trajectory of your business. And of course, in the best of circumstances, that investor might even be introducing you to potential prospects and customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are the things that matter a lot more than the dollars and cents on evaluation. Mm -hmm. And so that brings up an interesting point about, about investors. And, and it's something I've been recently seeing. Um, in the CPG industry, there starts to be a lot of conversation about like, be careful who you get in bed with, right? Because, uh, you know, look through the contracts, like some investors that say they're founder friendly and then they turn around and then turn out to not be so founder friendly. Um, what, are, what are some of your sort of insights around that? Um, there have been a couple of stories, uh, particularly in the plant-based space uh, that of founders being very critical of, of investors and of 
these sort of investors with a mission that turn around and then, you know, kick the founder out or change the course of the company entirely. So do you believe this, that it's really important to find a, an investor that is actually aligned with, with, with the mission of your business and how hard or easy is that? Yeah. Um, so a founder I used to work with, I've uh, described every funding round as getting married. Oh. Um, it, and it, and that, that's really it. Like you're in it, you're effectively in a long-term relationship. Uh, and you're not always going to be aligned in that long-term relationship. What matters is that you're coming it from the perspective of trust. You're, you have an open dialogue and you use your board, your investors as, as a support group, as an ally, as somebody you can go to and ask for advice, and you don't always have to follow that advice. And the investor needs to understand that their advice will not always be followed either. Mm-hmm. Too many founders, I think, are like are black and white. They're either the board is a necessary evil, I'm here to change the world and save the planet, and well, I have to take money from somebody, so I might as well, who can, who, it doesn't matter who I take it from, I just get them all some money, I might as can. Then you're just cutting yourself off from valuable advice and networking opportunities. On the other side, founders get fall in love with their investors and they think their investors and them are 100% aligned, that their investors will never mislead them, that uh, they're best friends, they can call them any time. And mm-hmm. that is true 95% of the time when things are going well. But 10% of the time when things start to not go well, you start to, you realize that. Incentives might not be aligned. As a founder, this is your baby. This is the company you've built. Your your entire success, your identity, your net worth are tied into this company. As an investor, you have a hundred different bets. If one of them ills, too bad. You have another one to look after. So um, as an investor, you're not necessarily as bought in. You're not necessarily as committed to any individual company relative to the founder. Uh, now, that means that you're maybe coming in with a more sober, more realistic perspective, and that's super, super critical. That's why you should not cut, up, cut your investors off and don't treat them as a necessary evil. Treat them as actual value add. But it's also important to recognize that you're not always going to want the same outcome. Mm-hmm. Think about Groupon, right? I don't know if you remember the story. This was maybe more than 10 years ago at this point, but Groupon had an opportunity to sell to Google for $6 billion dollars. If their investors told them not to do that. Why? Because the investors thought that there is some chance the group goes public for a better valuation. And if mm. it doesn't, oh well, who cares? We have other bets. Who cares for that one? Right. Yeah. 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 Now where's the group on now? Haven't heard of it. <laughs> should have t- should have taken that check when you had the chance. Um, but I think that's a great story, right? Because it, it does highlight that that tension, right? That that people feel, um, and, and that natural dynamic that exists between founders and investors. Now, in talking about investment, this is something I've been thinking about recently. I don't know if you have a perspective on that, but somebody who's like in the very early stage of their business. Okay, we're talking about one employee, one idea. Um, what? Do you think it always makes sense to look for funding from an investment perspective? Or do you think there's other uh, ways for them to get capital, like through debt, that may be more advantageous? Do you have a perspective on that? 
So most of my, so I was going like to start with a disclaimer. Most of my experiences in venture backed tech startups, like from day one, they're like, oh, we want to build a billion dollar company, right? They know them from day one that that puts you in a little bit of a different track. Um, but ultimately, like, no, raising VC money is, is not the only path to success, right? There's plenty of successful businesses that have been bootstrapped. Um, I think it, to me, it comes down to what are you looking for in your business? What kind of outcome are you looking for? What are, What is the time horizon and trajectory trying to build towards? Um, mm-hmm. There are some founders who are like, hey, I don't necessarily care about running a billion dollar company. I want control. I want mm-hmm. to do my thing. And I don't want to be holding anybody. And I don't want to have a boss. Because that's the reality is if you, the moment you get an investor on the board, you have a boss. Um, and they bootstrap their businesses. They've chosen to grow more slowly. Mm-hmm. But be profitable and break even. So they finance the business really just through the, you know, the return, the, the customer sales. Um, I've, I've worked with some of these founders who halfway down the journey decided that, nope, now's the time. I'm ready to go raise some venture capital, maybe from a non-traditional, non-standard VC investor. But uh, the way I want, you know, a $10, $20 million, $30 million infusion into the business because I see the opportunity to unlock, grow. I have high confidence that I can execute because I've already done that for the previous five years. And I want to be able to go get to the next stage. I want to get into big leagues. But then once you get to me later, right? And in the early days, you finance through customer sales, you finance through your savings, you finance through SBA, so small business administration loans. Um, you can raise money from, you know, friends and family, from angel investors, and then pay them back instead of raising a series A. So there's a lot of different paths. Um, <laughs> It's not one size fits all, mm-hmm. uh, but once you start going down one path, you know, it's rarely, it's rarely easy to downgrade back to the other path. For like a little word, you can only upgrade. You can only choose to raise more money. It's hard to go and say, oh, well, I actually, you know, I raised VC money and I decided I don't want any, can I pay it back? No, you can't. You're stuck. You're stuck. You got out. Yeah. You signed, you signed away that contract. You took the check. And now you, you gotta you gotta make it work with that, um, no. And it you know uh, sort of not even whether or not the market conditions are favorable at that time, right? Which is what I think is happening with a lot of companies right now too. Is that they're they're faced with changing market conditions and the the even the things that they thought they could deliver with that funding now feel more difficult. Uh, so yeah, that, that's really helpful, Mika. What about, so let's like move a little bit into some of the work that you do, which I'd be very curious about learning more. So if a company now is at the stage, maybe they've raised some, some funding, uh, they have the ability and, and they're looking to grow and they're looking to hire a strategic partner, a strategic finance partner, an CFO. What are the qualities that that folks should be looking for uh, that that are really important to have in that kind of partner? Yeah, um, so there are a couple of different partners you can bring in, uh, depending on the stage of the journey you're in, what you're looking for. I think like the, the default thing people think about is fractional X Y Z, fractional CLO, fractional CRO, whatever. Um, that's a great way to save money. Uh, if you are, if you're effectively looking to, you know, if you don't feel like you need a finance function, but you obviously need somebody to do accounting, somebody to file the taxes for you, 
that's where practical CFO comes in. If you are, you know, if you have a sales team, maybe two two account executives that report directly to you as the founder and it's working, but you're looking for someone to kind of like help you see around corners, like that's where a practical CRO comes in. Um, mm -hmm. Fractional roles aren't going to be good at managing people for you. They're going to be good at de-risking things for you, right? I think of Accounting and tax and compliance is ultimately risk. Uh, risk that you miss a payment, risk that you don't pass an audit, risk that you get in trouble with the IRS, et cetera. Same with fractional CROs, like you're thinking about effectively sales ops, how to structure the team in the long run, not necessarily like the fractional CRO isn't going to go necessarily and like get in front of the customer and sell something on your behalf. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want somebody who's customer facing, if you want somebody who is deeply, deeply engaged within their company on a daily basis, you need a full-time hire, right? Mm -hmm. If you're looking to de-risk, if you're looking to, uh, understand like what the future could look like, and there's like a pretty straightforward, limited scope of work, then you're looking for a fractional X, Y, Z. Um, and then of course, if you're looking for an advisor or a thought partner, something that's going to like cross over between a mentor and a coach and somebody who's hands-on can actually dig in and do some analysis for you. Um, and of course you have a scale for that, right? Because ultimately, like if you have, if you have 10 customers, you don't need an outside party to come in and tell you anything new about those 10 customers. You probably know all that, but you went out to hundred customers and you want to understand where the next tip you're going to come from. That's where that outside and expert agent skill set comes in. And that's where you want to go start looking for somebody who's more of a thought or somebody who's going to get on the phone with you, maybe spend a day deeply embedded in your business every week, meet your leadership team, and ultimately help you as a CEO and founder grow. Because as a CEO, you don't really have peers, like, right? You, your peer network is other CEOs who may have also not done this before. So you right. need somebody you can call on who you trust. Um, to just talk through novel situations you find yourself in daily, weekly, monthly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially if that if that's something you haven't done before. Which a lot of the of the CEOs that I work with, this is their first time doing this stuff, right? So there, there's always this. There's areas where they're uh, super well versed in, right? Whether it's they're behind the formulations, whether they're they, you know, really excelled at a marketing or PR role or engineering, whatever it is. Um, but then there's other areas that that are often blind spots if they've never done that that job uh, before. So, you know, speaking of founders, like, can can we talk a little bit of, about founders and like what are what are some of the qualities that you like to see in founders that you want to work with, and what are some of maybe like yellow red flags that maybe tell you that it might not be a great partnership or that um they might not be ready to lead a, a company you have any thoughts there yeah um well i guess i'll start with like i try not to judge my clients i'm here to help you get from wherever you are to where you want to go because ultimately if you're a founder if you raise vc capital if you you're you're doing something that I know I would never do. So like that's like that's just not my risk cap and that's not my risk profile. Um so like huge hats off, huge respect, right? So like, mm -hmm. um and I'm here to help support the journey, right, to the extent that I can. Um the the thing that I think differentiates founders that are more successful than others is self-awareness and the growth mindset. Mm -hmm. Um they're founders who 
who know that as the company grows, their skill set needs to evolve. We're open to feedback. Um, we're open to harsh feedback sometimes. Pushback. Uh, open to pushback, probably too, right? Yeah, pushback too, right? Because like as a, especially as an early stage founder, like at times it's going to feel like you're doing therapy for your team. You're like everyone's group therapist, and sometimes the therapist needs a therapist. Now, right? It's it's tough. It's mentally tough. It's taxing. It's it's all consuming. It's boundaries get blurred. And all that stuff. Uh, so it, that that mindset, the self awareness, and the growth mindset, the the that openness to pushback and feedback is critical. Right? I've seen I've seen founders who once the company gets to Series B, Series C, or stage like F said, hey. I was the right person to lead this up until this point, and I'm not the right person to lead it going forward. I'm going to go replace myself as CEO, or I'm going to stay CEO, I'm going to focus on X, and I'm going to hire somebody else to go do Y that I used to do myself, right? Ultimately, you engineer yourself out of a job, and the moment you can hire somebody to do something you used to do before, that's not a sign of failure. That's actually a sign of success. That means the company's matured to the point where you can delegate where you can trust somebody, where the process is defined well enough, where the outcomes are clear, to drive forward, we can bring in somebody who doesn't have a founder mindset, but has more of an execution mindset, and get them off and running and successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, because so often, right, it's like the things, like you said, the, the maybe the skill set that brought you to where you were is not the skill set that's going to take you to the next stage of of your vision and, and having that self-awareness and knowing like these are areas where maybe I could use some support. Um, but I also find that sometimes uh, founders who have been used to doing like everything under the sun, you know, being sales, marketing, finance, da, 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 and also being the therapist and the investor facing, that sometimes the delegation is hard and, and trusting the team is also uh, hard because nobody is going to love your company like you love your company, right? It's it's your baby. Yeah. Um, so do you have any thoughts or advice for that for like founders that are like, they, they know that they need to start uh, delegating and they need to start sort of removing some of the things that they used to be doing so that company can enter a new stage of growth, but are having trouble letting go or letting go of what they think are the standards uh, that they hold themselves to. Or their company. Yeah, I mean, I see this all the time. Um, I, to me, also, I mean, it's it's a it's a, it's hard, right? I've actually struggled with that myself as a manager when the first time I had to manage somebody and delegate, like, like, holy shit, they're not going to do as good of a job as I could, right? Like, right. God, why would I? You want something done, you better do it yourself. Yeah, um, to, but it, like, it comes out of the same thing, like. Would you rather do two things well, or would you rather do one thing well and three things good enough? And it sounds like a cop-out to say good enough. That's fine. But like, as the company grows, like you're just not going to be able to be everywhere all the time. So you either can you know, run a very small bootstrap company with 10 employees where you know everything and everything is exactly what you want it to be. Or you can run a billion dollar company with a thousand employees where you don't know 95% happening in the company around you, but it gets done, right? And over again, going back to like my personal experience as a manager, the, the first time I had two direct reports, 
talk to each other, coordinate something, get it done without me even knowing that it was being done, actually felt like magic. Mm -hmm. I was like, holy shit, I don't have to stress about this. Like, hey, we can figure this out without me. This is great. This is what I've been looking for my entire time. Like, And it doesn't matter if they did it the way I thought it should be done or differently. What matters is, like, is the customer happy? Did the revenue come in? Right, right. That's all that matters. That's all that matters, right? And changing those metrics. Like, what is the metric that we're really um, evaluating people's work done, uh, on, right? Is it is it like, yeah, did you get the work done? Did you seal the deal? Did you Did you make it happen? Or is it like, did you do it in the perfect way that I would have done it, right? Did you send the email in the right way? Um, and I, I think it's a very common dynamic that, that CEOs that I've seen as they start to grow and as the company starts to grow, it, it's a natural process that they have to uh, grow into this different type of leadership where you really try to lean into what your strengths are and, and delegate things that that might not be where, where you are best placed to, to deliver results on. So switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about something that I've, I've seen you talk about um, on your LinkedIn. I've seen some of the blog posts you've written about this. And I'd be, and I'd be really curious if we could kind of educate uh, our listeners on this topic. And that is, why do you think that people and founders and entrepreneurs should think about turning cost centers into growth drivers. I'm really fascinated by this concept and I would just love it if you could like explain it to us um, and why, why do you think that's so powerful for companies? Yeah, 100%. It's, it's one of the things that actually makes me take one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing today. Um, let me just take a step back. Like Traditionally, you know, people think of companies as having a front office and a back office, right? The front office is going to be customer-facing roles, roles are bringing revenue, it's your sales, it's your marketing function, it might be your operations function, right? Um, and then you have the back office, it's finance, it's HR, it's legal, it's all this stuff that you make a face when you say, I don't know, you don't want to deal with it sometimes, right? It's a, it sounds like a burden, it's administrator, it sounds like compliance. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the pay depending on the size of the company, you could think of, it could be a middle office, right? You could have like functions that ultimately have customer impact that may not be allowed to talk to the part of the customer. Somebody who's like running behind the scenes, getting the work done, they're maybe responsible for the delivery, but they're not necessarily getting the phone and being in front of the customer. Um, so people think of the stock office as a cost center, right? It's, and when you see something as called the cost center, the natural response is like, how do I cut it? How do I spend less money doing this? Can I go hire a cheaper bookkeeper? Can I go hire outsource accounting? Can I avoid having a lawyer? Can I just like get it done myself, right? Um, so if you're leading a function like that, if you're a CFO, if you're general counsel, if you're head of HR, um, you want to think about the ways your function contributes to the growth of the company. Uh, because if you're not, then you're on the menu instead of at the table, right? And as an owner, if your back office teams are cost centers and are behaving like such, they're order takers, they're just getting the work done, checking the boxes, uh, and they're not aligned with the growth of the company, you can't afford that. When every dollar of capital you've taken from investors or from, you know, by getting a second mortgage in your house or whatever, like that's expensive. You can't afford to have people who are not contributing to the growth of the company. Mm -hmm. um, so 
if you find yourself in one of those functions, you find yourself managing one of those functions, ask yourself the question of, with the skills that I have, how can I uncover opportunities for the company to grow? How can I be a better partner to that front office set of functions? Right. One of the reasons I did what I'm following now, the externship into sales is to be able to come back and ultimately be, be a better CFO and a better partner to my CRO, wherever I go down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as a CRO, you appreciate working with somebody on the other side who understands your problems, understands what your priorities are, and is able to design the right processes, the right conversation structures, the right, the right contract review, the right deal with, the right pricing that helps your solve your problems instead of adding to them. Mm-hmm. And of course, as a CRO, you appreciate it even more when, you know, when the accountant or the finance analyst or the legal analyst comes to you and says, hey, I uncovered this thing in our, in our customer behavior and our data and our contracts. And if we change it, I think we can close deals faster. I think we can get people to pay 10% more. I think we can retain customers better. Those are the kinds of things you have a perspective by virtue of zooming out and not actually being wedded to every deal that you can gain the back office and unlock growth opportunities for the company. Mm-hmm. And that's how you transform yourself from being a cost center to being a growth driver. Mm. Well, and it seems like a lot of it really boils down to having all of the functions that you manage really think strategically about the business and not so much like perhaps stuck in the tactics or the details or just paying the invoices, right? It's like encouraging uh, folks, particularly for founders that are managing teams, right? To, to think differently, I think, about functions that are, that are often considered just like, you know, I'm just punch in, punch out, like send the shipment and do the thing, right? Um, and, and I think what you're saying is, is kind of revolutionary because even at large companies, I don't know if I really experienced that from those types of teams. So I'm curious, like, where does this insight come from? And like, have you seen companies that do this uh, successfully? Do you have examples of companies that have done this really well or in your own experience? Because that's certainly the role that you played. But was that just Mika being a genius? Um, or, or did you pick it up from another place? Yeah. Um, I want to like maybe pick on a word you use strategically, um, helping every function things strategically. I actually don't like that word. Um, you don't like that so word. I don't like the word strategy. I don't like the word strategic because everybody says that they are, right? Mm-hmm. And it ultimately means something different to everybody else. For some people, it means... I know how to prioritize things on a list. For other people, it means I think two years ahead of everybody else. Uh, For me, it means I know what to say no to. But it means something slightly different to everybody. So Mm -hmm. if you start talking about are we strategic or are we not, well, it's kind of like asking people, like, do you deserve to be here or not? (laughs) All right. That's not really a good debate you want to go down. what I actually do think, though, is, is the mindset. It's the mindset of owning the result, the mindset of accountability as opposed to finger-pointing and blame-shifting, right? Okay. Um, for finance leaders in particular, a lot of finance leaders pride themselves and talk about their function as being Switzerland. And they're like, hey, we're neutral. We're going to evaluate all the options. We're going to tell you this is what option A costs, this is what option B costs, and it's your decision. We don't have an opinion, right? Right. Well, we just give you the numbers and you decide. 
<laughs> exactly. We don't have an opinion also means that, well, I don't deserve any of the credit for when things go well. Because I didn't have an opinion. I just did the math, right? I just So it means, uh, I think the opposite of that is sticking your neck out. Actually saying, hey, I have a bias. My bias is that answer A is better than answer B. Here's why I think answer A is better. I'm happy to be wrong. Let's have a data-driven debate. But I'm going to tell you up front that, you know, I believe answer A is the more correct one. And we can talk about it. And maybe we can change my, you can change my mind. Mm -hmm. um, and it, that, that's hard to do. That's that that actually gets harder as you get to be a larger, large and larger company. So, and there are probably more startups that do do this well. You know, large companies, like especially the more you go public, the importance of compliance and reporting outweighs any benefit of any being a growth driver. Um, and I think I can think of maybe one or two or three companies that do this well that are public right like mm -hmm. if you've ever worked with uh folks from ge for example or companies that hire folks from ge now you're probably thinking six sigma process blah 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 yep that's all there and you either love it or hate it but the reality is that that's a company that has been able to create a culture of ownership within their finance and within their back office departments, where people are accountable to the result and they're paired with their business counterpart. And yes, there might be head of sales or general manager or business unit, but there's also a head of FP&A, head of strategic finance that's paired with them, and they feel that they're in the same boat. One cannot succeed without the other. Mm. So how, what would you say, like, so related to that, do you think being able to think like that and add that kind of value is that a function of the company culture? Is that a function of the leadership empowering you? Um, or is that a function of the individual deciding that this is how they want to contribute um, to the company or, or all of all of the above? It's almost always all of the above. Whenever I'm an option, I'm going to take that as my All of the above. <laughs> all of the above, right? You, but as a leader, as a founder, you are if, if if this is something that you value right and you may come out and say you know what i just want an accounting i want compliance i don't care you know the answers that's fine and that's totally okay that's your prerogative as a founder it's nothing wrong with that you can different you know, different companies at different stages need different approaches but if this is something that you value the growth mindset that ownership mindset is something that you value in your back house your finance hr legal functions uh a for that. Hire people who can give you real world examples of something they've done in the past that demonstrated ownership and our orientation towards having the best outcome for the shareholders, as well as the, you know, checking the boxes and keeping their job security for lack of a better word. Encourage that in your behavior. Right? You, when people come to you with ideas, with pushback, like you cannot get defensive no matter how hard it is. You have to hear them out. We have to acknowledge that there's validity to their viewpoint. Smart people can disagree, and that's fine. That's part of the that's part of the growth process for the company and for individuals. Um, and then more broadly, you know, as you're building out the leadership team, create a culture around that. Create a culture where uh, people are motivated by helping each other out, as opposed to shifting blame. Right. And there's a balance to strike there too. Right? You don't want to create a culture of everybody owns everything because 
then nothing ever gets done. You have right. many cooks in the kitchen, you have constant debate, and you want a person can say, well, I have a different opinion, and I think it's important to hear it out. So, and then all the work stops until we, like, right. point until we reach consensus, which will never happen. Right. Exactly. Um, so having, having accountability, having ownership is important. And at the same time, it's important to kind of draw lines and respect each other's expertise. Mm-hmm. Wow, Mika, I feel like that that's a great little mic drop moment uh, for us. So tell us where, where can folks find you if they want to uh, connect with you, if they want to learn more about what you do, if they want to read what you write. Uh, tell us where people can find you. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I try to post a couple times a week. Um, Mika Osmol, or find me on LinkedIn. And if you ever can't find that, or if you want to find time to chat, advocacyandpencil.com, there's always a booking link. You can always grab, grab some time to chat for half an hour. There's no cost to you. I'm always happy to give out 30 minutes of free advice. Like I said, I actually enjoy this process. Um, and there's a link to my LinkedIn profile. Again, if you can't find that, then go to advocacyandpencil.com, and there's a link to everything you need to see. Great. Well, we'll also have a link to Miko's website in the show notes and i just want to thank mika for for coming on and having such a fruitful and insightful conversation to get our brains turning about cost centers and strategic finance partnerships so thank you so much mika thank you danielle it's been great to be here